That song too, I, I was thinking, you know, for, for Jewish people, they, they, um, they don't use God's name. So sometimes they just call him the name, his presence in, in Hebrew, Hashem. So they'll say Hashem, just the name, because name signifies his presence and his authority. Wonderful. Amen. I, um, I'm, I'm glad to be with you. I'm Dennis Edwards, senior pastor here at the Sanctuary Covenant Church. And, uh, you know, I haven't been here for much of April since Easter. So you might have thought, he's, he's still here? Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. Uh, I was away last week on a, on a Sankofa journey that many of uh, uh, Twin City pastors on. A lot of you have done a similar journey. Uh, one powerful thing about ours is we got to see the new um, uh, museum that uh, the Equal Justice Initiative with Brian Stevenson has opened just two weeks ago. And uh, so we, they're in Montgomery. So the uh, Legacy Museum and the uh, Peace and Justice and it was powerful. If you ever get a chance to go, uh, even if you don't get to make a whole Sankofa journey, but to get to Montgomery for that, it was, it's, it, it's just amazing. Um, I'm going to take a moment to pray, and then we'll get into our, our uh, topic for today. Lord, we give you thanks because you are good, and your mercies endure forever. What a wonderful name it is, Lord Jesus, to be able to call on you to give you glory and to thank you for your great work in the world and your work in our lives. And I pray that you would give us this time, these few minutes we have together to be encouraged in your word, by your word, that we would be motivated and stimulated as well. So we would be the people you call us to be, people devoted to you and to all that you have laid before us, the mission you've called us to. We pray that we would be faithful, found faithful all the way to the end of our lives. So we pray, Lord, for your will to be done, even in these moments in time. We give you glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're embarking on a new series today. Uh, It's a series in the affirmations that go along with being part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. How many of you know that we're part of a denomination? Some of you know we're part of the denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church. I am not going to give you a lot of history. You can get some history if you take our Membership Matters class. Orion Lee Norman can give you a lot of our history. Pastor Judy Swanberg can give you a lot of history. I've made jokes about that because every time I say, oh, covenant or something like that, Pastor Judy will say, now, Dennis, and she'll explain to me why we do what we do. And, um, and there's, there's, there's some rich history there. I will say, though, that the Covenant Church rises out of a, what might be called a back-to-the-Bible movement. It was called pietism. And there are some, there's three uh, denominations that you would know of that, that share the same uh, roots of pietism. Uh, pietism was a movement that emphasized the need for a life that's personally connected to Jesus, a reliance on the Holy Spirit, a call to service in the world. Those are some marks of pietism. And they stood in contrast to a state-controlled church that had become unfortunately stale and, uh, and pretty routine. Though that piet- the pietist roots of the Evangelical Covenant Church emerge out of uh, Scandinavia, which is true for the Evangelical Free Church of America, whose headquarters are here in Minneapolis. And um, they, their roots are largely Norwegian. And uh, some of you know, I was actually first ordained in the Evangelical Free Church because the uh, seminary they own is uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. It's where I went. The other group is the, uh, used to be called the Swedish Baptist, then Baptist General Conference, now called Converge. They own Bethel University and Bethel Seminary, so you would know that local here. Of course, in Minnesota, we expect these groups to be represented, whose roots are Scandinavian. And then, of course, there's the Evangelical Covenant Church, of which we're a part. 
our school, North Park in uh, Chicago, and our headquarters in Chicago. Now, I'm not really here to give you much more history than that, but we have, rather than a long, rigid doctrinal statement, we have six affirmations. And pretty, pretty straightforward and simple. In fact, I kind of like that we don't have a big, bulky doctrinal statement. Some people, that bothers them. They like more rules. And some people, that kind of like the freedom within the six affirmations. So we'll talk about these over the next six weeks, partly because I think we all just need to know, and they're good things for us to know, and they are rooted in Scripture. Uh, but also, as we go through a transition and think about who we are, especially in, in, in selecting another pastor, it's good to remind ourselves of our identity, corporate identity, local and broadly. And I don't think we've ever done a series on the covenant affirmations, at least not in my six years here. So that's part of my motivation. Hopefully you won't say, oh, it's just going to be a list of statements. No, hopefully you'll see how they can be uh, real for us in our life together. Um, the denomination covenant used to have a different name. And some of us, you know, even want to get the evangelical out of the name, but that's a whole other story, evangelical covenant church. But evangelical really has to do with the Bible, euangelion in Greek, or the evangel, uh, the good news, which comes from the Bible, but it's become politicized, I suspect, now in this time. But the covenant church used to be called Mission Friends, hence the name of our series, a Mission Friends, a Covenant uh, Community. This is what our denomination says about ourselves. We confess Jesus Christ in the faith of the apostles as recorded in the Holy Scriptures. We believe the authority of the Bible is supreme in all matters of faith, doctrine, and conduct, and is to be trusted. Where is it written? Was and is the covenant's touchstone, touchstone of discussion with regard to faith and practice? Where is it written? Was one of the questions that was used frequently when covenanters uh, discussed any matters and in many places still is. So there are six affirmations. Today, we'll start with the centrality of the word of God, the centrality of the word of God. That is a lot I can talk about the Bible. I spent my whole adult life trying to study and understand the Bible, and that's why I went on and got a doctorate in Bible. But I won't um, belabor you with all that because your eyes will glaze over and say, uh, why did I come today? No, so we will try to make this interesting and engaging for you. We're going to talk about the centrality of the Bible. But first, to get there, especially on this Energen Sunday, I wanted us to recite a passage of Scripture and memorize a passage of Scripture that has to do with God's Word. But before we do that, I just want to set it up. It's going to come from Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is a masterful work. It's an artistic, beautiful creation. And we sometimes miss that. I know sometimes people look at the Bible as just simply a list of rules or, you know, self-help stuff, so they magically pull out a verse. But, but we forget the work that the Holy Spirit did in putting together this masterful work. It's, it's rather creative. For example, in the Old Testament, particularly in poetry, um, poetry is stylized in different ways. I won't give you a long discussion on that, but one device that's used is an, is an acrostic, meaning that each line starts with a successive letter of the alphabet. You can't see it in English, but it's there in Hebrew. Um, but it would be like us trying to make a poem with our alphabet. So apples are a delicious fruit. Bananas are tasty too. Cantaloupe is juicy and sweet. Uh, donuts are better. Um, <laughs> I was, I was struggling to have a D fruit. But anyway, you get the point. We could go 26, but that wasn't a very good poem. Just, those were just sentences. But Old Testament poetry is rich and creative. And, and I think we miss that when we just try to pull a verse out and say, oh, I just want something today to make me feel better. We, we, rich the, we miss 
the richness. Psalm 34 is an acrostic. Each verse starts with a successive letter of the alphabet. Some of you on uh, Mother's Day will recite Proverbs 31 at the end to your mom. Those last few verses about the virtuous woman is an acrostic. Each line starts with a successive letter of the alphabet. And Psalm 119 is the master of all acrostics. The first eight verses all start with the same first letter, Aleph, 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 and then Beit, 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 and Gimel, Gimel, Gimel. So if you have an English Bible, it'll sometimes mark the paragraphs with those Hebrew letters, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and so on down down the line. So you get eight verses that start with the same letter, then the next eight verses, 22 letters of Hebrew alphabet times eight, 176 verses, biggest chapter in the whole Bible. But just think about that. To say something coherent (laughs) and meaningful, significant, and done with such creativity, that's Psalm 119. We're going to memorize verses 103 to 105. Three verses. We can handle it. And you people in the first service, don't act like you're smarter than everybody else because you already did it. And then you'll be shouting out the answers like you all know. But I'm glad you know, hopefully, if you still remember. So here we go. We're going to try Psalm 119, 103 to 105. Let's read it all together. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Now, it is an IV. I know some of you memorize things in the King James Version because, you know, 1611 is holy or <laughs> apparently. Um, but, but, um, and I know people with different learning styles and learning abilities uh, will learn, memorize things differently. But we're just going to try this together. Let's read that all together again. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. You got it? Uh, We'll see. Okay, next slide. Okay, let's try it. How... Oh, well done. Let's, let's try again. Okay. All right. All together. How? Wait, 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 wait. We can't perpetuate the mistake. Okay. How sweet are your words to my taste? Okay, thank you. Every wrong path, thank you. As a lamp, light, lamp. (laughs) You got it? Let's go back a slide. Let's go back a slide. Okay, lamp for my feet, light on my path. All right? Okay, next one. All right, next one. All right. Let's see how we do here. How? A word to my taste. Okay. (laughs) All right. One more slide. Okay. (laughs) Let's do it. Taste. 
Okay, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Uh, don't cheat and look in your Bible. And, and cheating and looking in your Bible is not usually um, going together. But, um, but in this case, it would be cheating. Okay, who's going to recite it for me by memory? Come on up. Who's got it? Come on, sweetie. <laughs> Can I use one? I have the yellow. I have the yellow. You gonna try? You gonna do it? You got it. How sweet? No. That's okay. You don't have to. Where were well, y'all when I was taking my test? Okay. Are you? Words. Go ahead. Words. To my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a, is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. That's very, very, very good, very good, very good. Thank you, good job. Thank you. One more second. Woo, they standing up for you. Look at that. Okay, look. So, so I have this. This, this is a, a dollar coin. It's just a dollar. It's not about the money, right? But what I'm trying to say, when you take this, and Pastor Dennis will be gone, but you're going to say, Pastor Dennis values the Word of God. I want you to value the Word of God, okay? Good job. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Whew, that was good. Well done. We're going to talk more about the centrality of God's word. The Covenant Church has videos on these affirmations. We're not going to look at all the videos, although you'll see some if you do take Membership Matters. But we're going to look at just a piece of the, of the opening of the video with, on the, regarding the centrality of the word of God. The good book. The word of God. The Bible. The Old and New Testament. The Holy Scripture. The only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. God's love letter to the world. To the world. It's living and active. It shapes. Informs us through its stories and songs. It's the most important book ever written. Ever written. Do we really believe it's the living, breathing Word of God? This book has some interesting stories in it. But are we willing to allow it to radically change our view of the world? Of our neighbor? Of ourselves. And if we are willing, how will it change us? that's the question that we'll keep in mind as we consider the centrality of the Word of God. How will it change us? How will we let God's Word change us? Regarding this affirmation, the Covenant Church says this, we affirm the centrality of the Word of God. We believe the Bible is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. The dynamic transformation, a transforming power of the Word of God directs the church and the life of each Christian. So that's what the centrality of the word means is that we believe it to guide us in our life and our decision making, how we move, how, what we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world. Now, I asked the question, what is the Bible? And I could ask that more than rhetorically, but there's no time for us to take our variety of responses. But for some people, if I asked the question, what is the Bible? The answer would be more poetic and subjective. It'd be something about what the Bible means for you. And that's all good in terms of the significance of the Bible in your life. 
Some of you might be, be remembering times when you encountered something in the Bible or someone teaching you or, or how the truth of God's word hits you in a particular way. And that's all good. I don't want to dismiss that. But I am going to address it on a little bit more on a, on a uh, somewhat objective basis of what the Bible is. But I don't mean to uh, do that in a way that would be boring or disinteresting because, again, you'll say, why did I spend my time here today? So, but let me say this. There are some things about the Bible that are worthwhile to understand. Um, the Bible was, didn't just drop out of the sky as one whole nice leather-bound book with the le- writings of Jesus in red letters. And it didn't drop out the sky in 1611 King James English either, believe it or not. The Bible is a library. It's a collection of many different writings done by different authors, different human authors, over many years. It's a compilation. So it's a book of different genres, as I said, different writers over different time. What I mean by genre is that they're different styles, just I gave you a little taste of Hebrew poetry. But genre has certain kind of characteristics to it. For example, if I said to you, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister went into a bar, now some of you will start to chuckle because it sounds like the opening of a what? A joke. And with a joke, you expect certain things and then you expect a punchline. That's a, that's a genre. It's sometimes a, a, a verbal one, not necessarily literary, but it can go both ways. If I say to you, once upon a time, that sounds like what? A fairy tale. And in fairy tales, certain rules are suspended. Animals can talk. People can fly. People can transform into animals. There are all kinds of things, and you don't find it odd because it is a fairy tale. You know the genre, you respect the genre, and things can happen within that genre. If I say to you, it was a dark and stormy night, that would sound like a what? A what? Okay, could be a campfire story, could be a horror story. It could sound like a novel, just a story. That's the opening of uh, Wrinkle in Time, as a matter of fact. So, So you have rules associated with each of those genres and expectations. Same with the Bible. Not everything in the Bible is simply a command, although we treat it that way. And in fact, in some ways, we don't even respect the, the, the differences of the, of the Bible because we're taught to just pull a verse randomly and hope that it makes me feel better. Or just flip it open to a page and there should be some self-help advice there. And we, and we miss out on the rich message that God has for us. It would be like going to a big feast and walking away with a little cracker and saying, that's good, I'm satisfied. There's a whole feast there prepared for you. And it's best to understand the richness and the breadth and the diversity of the scriptures. And that takes a lifetime to get into. So, so when, we, when I think of the Bible, I think of it, as you probably know, I know I'm a little bit of a nerd about it, but I think of it a bit more than just a place where I find random little pieces to try to make me feel better. I actually want to understand, as we used to say, the whole counsel of God. So how do we keep the Bible central? Remember, that's the affirmation, the centrality of the word of God. Well, I want to suggest one way, and it's the way that a particular Bible character is described, and we're going to use him as an example for how we can keep the Bible central. This Bible character is one of my favorites. His name is Ezra. Now, Ezra is an Old Testament figure, and he factors into Israel's history in that, if you remember, Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians. 
In 587 BC, Jerusalem was ransacked by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. The temple that Solomon had built, that magnificent temple that we don't even really know what it looks like. We imagine it and see drawings, but it was magnificent. They destroyed that temple, took out the rich, uh, expensive vessels out of there, and took a whole bunch of Israelites over into Babylon. You read about that in the scriptures. You see it kind of played out in the story of Daniel, if you study the book of Daniel. Um, it was a devastating time in the life of Israel. In fact, it was so hard on them that they were losing touch with their identity as the people of God. Psalm 137, famous psalm, opens up with, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept as we remember Zion. And our oppressors said, sing to us one of those songs of Zion. And the response is, how can we sing in this foreign land? Our hands are too weak to play. They had been removed from their life together as the people of God. One of the things I'm most proud of here at the sanctuary when I think about what God has been doing showed up in the testimonies of Energen where I sense us being way more connected than I felt when I first came here six years ago. And I see these stories, hear these stories, I see things uh, happening in the connections. There's something that when the word of God is central and we're allowed to be the community of God that we're called to be, something rich blossoms and develops from there. These folks were in exile, away from that opportunity. Over time, the Babylonians got knocked off their perch as the superpower, and the Persians came along. And under King Cyrus, he said the folks could go back to the land. So you had this wave of uh, migration or immigration, I guess, back to the land. And, and, um, and if you open the first few books of Ezra, it looks boring to us. It's just lists of names and numbers and names. It's census data. Now to us, that's, that's meaningless. But if it's your family, it's meaningful. A lot of us go looking for our ancestry and we'll send our DNA off. We want to know, we want to see our names and we want to see our connection to the past. And, and Ezra provided that for the people. There's a list of who it was that came out of exile and made it over. So if you're reading that just a little bit generation later and you see your family in there, then it's very meaningful to you. Even though to us, we read these names that are hard to pronounce and we skip over those chapters. But Ezra got help to get the people back under the leadership of Nehemiah as well, rebuilt that temple, and then they started to worship again. And you remember there's this powerful scene in Ezra and in Nehemiah where the people stood up and they listened to Ezra read the word of God for six hours. They were standing up. We don't like to stand up for 30 seconds. We wouldn't stand up for six minutes for somebody reading. Say, they ain't done yet. It used to be people stood up for the scripture reading, at least for the gospel. Now it's like, get this over with. Six hours. They were eager to hear God's word. And Ezra helped to bring God's word back to the people of God. So he's one of my heroes. And this verse uh, is a description of him. And uh, it's, it's something that I take for myself when I think about how I want to be with God's word. This Ezra 7.10 says this, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Three basic movements here that describe Ezra. He devoted himself to study, to observe, and to teach. I want to encourage us in that way of Ezra because it's a way that we can keep the scriptures central 
in our own life and in our life together. So first, be devoted to study. Study requires inquiry, not casual page flipping that approaches to, you know, magic almost. And that's how some people approach it. You know, there's an old story about people who were looking for God's will, so they flipped through the pages, and they said, well, I'll just open up to something, open it up, and it said, Judas went out and hung himself. So, of course, the person thought, that can't be God's will for me. So they open up, and they said, what you, what, uh, go and do thou likewise. Well, that wasn't God's word for them either, so they opened up again and said, what you do, do quickly. So some people find... Um, They think that that's the way that they should get God's word uh, into their life. But God is asking more of us. He's asking us to be a little more disciplined about this. And I know it's much easier to not be disciplined and then blame it on the Holy Spirit. Well, I ain't even have to study that. The Holy Spirit just, don't blame that on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't want to take credit for laziness. So we have the opportunity to be devoted to, like Ezra says, devoted to, giving time and energy to, to study. And, and study means careful inquiry. It means paying attention. So, for example, I asked the, this morning, I'll ask uh, here too. I mean, just as we think about it, just quickly and obviously, how are we separated, in a sense, from the scriptures having been written at a different time than we live now? What are some obvious ways that we're different? I suggested one already, but I hope you understand my question. What separates us? from the world of the Bible. You can yell it out, it's allowed in church. Time, yeah, okay, that was general. Okay, let's, yes, time, but let's, let's break that down a little bit more. What goes with the time being different? I must have asked it differently in the morning because I feel like this is hard. Language is different. The Bible was not written in English, not in 1611 English. Somebody said, um, way of living. So culture, right, is different. People ate differently. They made a living differently. They dressed differently. We could go on down this list. Somebody else pointed out this morning, geography is different. The people in the Bible had no concept of of what's on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. And, and, And their life was around the whole Mediterranean. That's pretty much the area where everything in the Bible has taken place. So we're separated by geography, by language, by culture, by habits, by customs, by way of thinking, a whole worldview. And we forget this sometimes. So we assume we can snatch a verse out of there and it has a whole 21st century set of meanings that I supply to that rather than having those meanings come and speak to me. So, so one of my own values this is a Dennis value, but it's not Dennis alone is that I want to know as much as I can about these words written in their world to see what they mean and then how they resonate in my 21st century world. So it's important for me to understand what God is saying through the people who said it and wrote it, and he pushed to write these words. So study requires a little bit of discipline. It's what we try to do on Wednesday night when we have our uh, Bible study together. So he was devoted to study. The second thing says he was, aver- obs- uh, he was devoted to observing. Now, some translations say obeying, and that's not bad. Observing is a good translation because it takes into account obeying and understanding. Not every word is a command, so it's not necessarily about obedience per se. But some words are about helping us to understand more about God, about ourselves, about humanity, about the world. So part of what it means to discern uh, God's word 
is to see what God's trying to tell us about himself and about ourselves. For preachers, it's supremely important that we learn to practice what we preach. And many times in my life, I I look at a text and I think first about what is this saying to me and what is happening in my life that I need to make sure I'm at peace with in my heart because I want to share this with other people. There's a sense of being devoted then to observing, which means understanding and obeying God's word. You with me? So he devoted himself to study. He devoted himself to observing those teachings. And then finally, he devoted himself to teaching the word of the Lord. Now, not everyone is called to teach in that formal sense. I mean, even James says, not many of you should be teachers, he says. But all of us are called to pass along God's word in some way or another. Now, remember, when Israel is coming out of that slavery in Egypt, earlier than that Babylonian time, they're coming out of slavery in Egypt, and they're making it through the desert under Moses' leadership, and they get the law of the Lord up on Mount Sinai through Moses. And as they go along, Moses is telling them how they should react to this. And he says, listen, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one is Lord alone. And you should love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. And he says to teach this law to your children. Impress it on them, he says. Talk about God's word when you you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. This is one reason why we do Energen, folks, is because we want our younger and older together to practice passing along the word of God. That's teaching the word, even if it's not in a formal setting like a classroom. So to be like Ezra, to help keep the word central, is to study it, to observe it, and to pass it on, to teach it. That's my encouragement to us today as a community the word is central. Now, I know some people want to use it to beat up on other people, but that, that may be one of your um, strategies with the word, but that's not what I'm trying to get us to do at first. I want to think like in the video there, I want to see how the word changes me first when I encounter God through his word. So how do I respond? How do I respond when I think of the centrality of God's word? I think a healthy response is our communion. We take bread and we take the cup and we're saying that we believe God's word, his written word and the incarnate word, Jesus, the word made flesh. We're saying that we want to be nourished by God's word because we find God in his word. The prophet Jeremiah reflected on his call to ministry and said, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. I will bear your name, Lord God Almighty. Notice how Jeremiah likens God's word to something he consumed. You just read that. You just said that in Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Why is the word of God more than just those two places likened to food like that, sweet food? Because it should be consumed by us. We should let God's word nourish us. We should find delight and energy and refreshment from God's word. 
our, my invitation today is for us to consider our relationship to God and his word. Is God's word central in your life and in the life of our community? Do you let God's word nourish you? I want to invite the servers and pastors to come as we move into this time of communion. And as we get ready to take the bread and the cup, think about how you might consume God's word. Let it nourish you. Pastor Edrin is going to lead us in the logistics of how we'll do communion, and then we'll spend some time reflecting.